So let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, that word could also be flesh, the desires of the flesh, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest. Or the ESV says, like the rest of mankind. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. Oh Lord, how we need help. We worship you. And we are glad that you are God. What hell it would be if one of us were God. We're glad you're God. We're glad that you have saved. Lord Jesus, we thank you and worship you that you would come and redeem rebel sinners. We are unworthy of your saving grace. Lord, help us to see as we look at the Scriptures and look at our confession that we are the recipients of a truly amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last Lord's Day... We looked at the entrance of sin into the human race. We focused primarily on the act, the very act of Adam and Eve's sin. Remember, God created them upright. Solomon says, I have seen that God created man upright, but he has sought out many schemes. God created Adam and Eve upright and perfect. The serpent seduced Eve. Eve seduced her husband who willingly ate of the fruit. And God, while remaining free from sin, absolved of any accusation, also purposed from all eternity to arrange these events in order to bring glory to Himself. Namely, to the praise of His glorious grace in the salvation of sinners and to the praise of His justice in the damnation of sinners all while remaining completely free of sin and all men remaining completely responsible for every act of sin that they commit, knowingly or unknowingly. We are fully responsible for our sin. That was chapter or paragraph 1 of this chapter. Now tonight we're going to continue looking at the sin problem and I've called paragraph 2 an overview of total depravity. Now most of you know, hopefully that this doctrine of total depravity constitutes the T in the acronym TULIP. And hopefully, most of you know, contrary to popular belief, the doctrine does not find its origin in that acronym. The doctrine does not find its origin in the Synod of Dort. The doctrine is derived, is found in the Scriptures. It is a biblical concept. It has been challenged by mankind throughout history continues to be challenged because men hate this doctrine. 
This, the doctrine of total depravity leaves us without any help in ourselves. Utterly helpless apart from God. Now, just, in, just again by way of introduction, just thinking through some of these things, let's think about that phrase, total depravity. Because that's not the title that was given to that doctrine at the Synod of Dort, or uh, that, that's a, a relatively new title. Total. What does the word total mean? Consisting of all of the parts of a thing. Depravity means literally completely crooked or corrupted or perverse. So the question is, when we hear the phrase total depravity, we need to ask ourselves, maybe secondarily, is this what we actually believe? But primarily, is this what the Bible teaches? When we hear that title, someone might say, do you believe in total depravity? And now in our society, we, sometimes we probably feel like we need to say, what do you mean by that first before I answer that question? And we, we need to answer it for ourselves. When we hear that phrase, is it what we believe? And, and again, primarily, is this what the Bible teaches? So as we look at this paragraph, we'll look at the roots of depravity. I've broken the paragraph up into two parts. The roots of depravity and then... At the end, we see a definition of total depravity. So let's look at the roots of total depravity. The paragraph begins, Our first parents by this sin. This we studied last week. Our first parents being Adam and Eve. This sin being eating of the forbidden fruit. Now notice the word by. Our parents by this sin. This first sin committed by Adam and Eve was the instrumental means by which sin entered the human race. Now notice the effect that this sin had on the human race. Of course, at that point, there were only two that constituted the entire human race. But notice the effect. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. I'm calling this the basis of depravity. They fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. Depravity means corruption. The corruption in men is a product of the fall. Notice that it, they fell from two things. They fell from two things that we don't have naturally. They fell from original righteousness and communion with God. Original righteousness. Again, God created man upright and perfect. He created them in the very image of God. When He completed creation, He said it is very good. Adam and Eve had an original righteousness. They were created with a nature that was conformed to the moral standard of God. As I repeatedly said last week, they had no sin, they had no inclination to sin, they were not leaning toward sin, maybe just a little bit. They were originally righteous. And they fell from that. Secondly, they fell from communion with God. That is, personal, unhindered, unbroken, intimate, friendly, loving fellowship with Almighty God. They had that. And that's possible because they were upright and perfect. 
And then they fell from both of these. Now hopefully you can see sort of a logical movement in this. They lost their original righteousness, therefore becoming sinful, corrupt, wicked. And because of that corruption, they lost communion with God. God cannot share communion with sin, and sin cannot share communion with God because God is holy. And so they fell from both original righteousness, communion with God. They had them, they sinned, they lost them. This is the basis of depravity. Loss of righteousness leading to the loss of communion with God. Notice then this depravity spreads from them. It says, our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and we in them whereby death came upon all. Their loss of these forms the foundation or the basis for the spread of sin in all mankind. When it says, we in them, that's the, the writers of the confession, and, and we as confessors, we now living people lost an original righteousness that we never personally had. We lost it in them. And we lost communion with God which we never personally had. We lost it in them. When they lost these, they lost them for everybody. We and them, whereby death came upon all. We read last week from Romans 5, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, notice the language of the confession here. They fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them whereby death came upon all. Notice the transition from loss, their loss, to our gain. They lost original righteousness and communion with God. We gained death. The loss of original righteousness and communion with God is equated with death. Now, how do these two things connect? These two losses equaling death. Well, let's look at the fall again. What happened in the garden? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I've said this many times. We know that Adam did not immediately, physically, fall over dead. Now, either... We have some options here. Either God is a liar. We reject that outright. So we have to take option number two. The word die, when God says you shall die, it means more than just immediate physical death. He wasn't saying you're just going to kill over in the moment. There's got to be more in that word die that was threatened upon disobedience. And we, we break that death up biblically into three types of death. Following John Murray, I'm going to call them spiritual death, physical death, and judicial death. Spiritual death or moral and religious death, the loss of spiritual life. 
physical or what he calls psychophysical death, the dissolution of the physical body. Or we could say for Adam, the, the, the immediate effect was mortality that would lead eventually to physical death. Dissolution of the physical body. And then judicial death with relation to God. You are as good as dead. You are cursed judicially by God, which will then lead to eternal punishment. These are all... The Bible uses the word death to describe all of these states. And notice that all of them have a relation to God. If you're spiritually dead, you have no spiritual life. You're cut off from God, the source of spiritual life. If you're physically dead, your body is cut off from the physical life source that God gives. If you're judicially dead, you are in relation to God under His curse. And again, as good as dead in God's eyes. Three types of death. Adam sinned. Adam died. He now came under these three types of death. And we can see this played out in the Genesis narrative. Physical death. Genesis 3.19, God told Adam... Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That was a part of the, the, the consequences of Adam's sin. Now you're going to physically die. Spiritual death, that is being cut off from God. In Genesis 3.23, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He was, he was expelled from what the Bible calls the garden of God, the presence of God. Judicial death. In Genesis 3.10, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Immediately at Adam's sin, he no longer recognized God as friend but as judge. He recognized I'm as good as dead in the presence of this God. Death is the lack of original righteousness leading to being severed from communion with God and the blessings that come from that communion. Corruption severs one from God and the ensuing alienation from God is called death in, in all its forms. This is what comes upon all of Adam's race. Because of Adam's sin, we are now conceived as mortals... We are conceived, cut off from God. Paul says no one seeks for God. We are conceived under the curse of the law, for none is righteous, no, not one. And all of that because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin is the root of depravity. And it flows from there to us. That's the first part. That was the easy part. Remember last week I let you out early. The second part, picking up there, I've entitled a definition of total depravity. A definition of total depravity. Notice the confession says, all becoming dead in sin. Now we just define dead as being cut off from God. I want you to just keep that in your head. You don't have to agree with me yet, but just keep it there. All becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. All, all people descending from Adam and Eve becoming dead in sin. Again, I'm, I'm putting forth that that word dead means severed from God 
physically, spiritually, judicially cut off from God and the blessings that would come from a right communion with Him. All becoming dead in sin. Now where do we get that phrase? Ephesians 2.1. So now we're going to go back to the text that we read at the beginning. Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Trespasses going beyond what God's law allows. Sins falling short of God's perfect moral standard. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Notice he doesn't say you were dead because of your trespasses and sins. He doesn't say you were dead and so you just couldn't do anything. You were, you were lying there like a corpse. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. And we say, well, what does that mean? Keep reading and Paul will tell us what he means by dead in the trespasses and sins. And what we want to do is see if this fits what, what we've been saying. What the confession says. Do we believe what the Bible teaches is the question. So Paul continues. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is the Apostle Paul's definition of dead in sins. It's very easy to jump to analogies, and sometimes they're helpful, but it's very easy to say, well, I didn't need a life preserver. I was floating at the bottom of the, of the ocean, and God had to come and scoop me up. That's, that's true, in a sense, salvifically. We were, we're not contributing, but let's allow the apostle to define what he means by dead in the trespasses and sins. Notice what he says, that, that we were walking. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we were walking, all men by nature were walking in the trespasses and sins. So your lifestyle was characterized by going beyond and falling short of God's perfect moral standard. In other words, never complying. You're, you're never in the middle. You're always falling short, always going beyond, never complying. Walking in the trespasses and sins. Secondly, you were following the course of the world or walking according to the course of the world or could be translated the age of the world, which is a strange phrase. What it's saying is you were living your life by the principles set forth by the common consensus of fallen humanity. You've probably heard the, the, the word zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Whatever everybody else feels like doing at this time and place in the world, that's what you're doing. You're going along with the flow, the course of the world, fallen humanity. You were living according to the way everybody else decided would be the right way to live in the world. Thirdly, you were following or walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's a long way of saying the devil. You were following, living your life according to the devil. Your life was patterned after the ways that the devil teaches the sons of disobedience to live. That's where you were. Fourthly, you were living in the 
passions of the flesh. Keep that in the back of your head. The passions, or we could say the lusts, the passions of the flesh. Your life was characterized by passions or affections which find their source in the flesh. The human nature severed from God. Apart from God, that's the flesh. So your passions, your affections, that's what drove you. And those were apart from God. What does that look like? He says, carrying out the desire of the body. Well, the word body there is the same word flesh. You are carrying out the desires of the flesh, the human nature severed from God. Whatever the natural man craved, that's what you were doing. Natural, physical, sensual cravings dictated your actions. And those were all severed from God. And then he says, you were carrying out the desires of the mind. Everything that came into the mind as desirable, all things being equal, you did it. Whatever popped into your mind. And that mind, again, is the mind of the flesh that is natural human nature severed from God. That's how the Apostle Paul defines dead in the trespasses and sins. You're walking in them, never complying with God's standard. You're following the spirit of the age. You're living like the devil. You're living and your life is governed by the passions of the flesh. You're carrying out every desire of your natural body and of your natural mind. That's how you were living. That's the natural man. Dead in the trespasses and sins. Notice in that text, your flesh, that is your human nature apart from God, has desires. It has appetites. It wants things. It's not comatose. It's corrupt. It's, I'm going to use the word, alienated from God. I'm going to use that phrase. But it still has desires. When a person is dead in trespasses and sins, the body and mind desire things according to the passions of the flesh. The affections are stirred by human nature, alienated from God, and these passions or these affections are disposed a certain way. They're not neutral. The question is, are they, are these passions, are these affections, are they kind of leaning toward God? Or are they kind of leaning toward not God? That's the question. Well, Paul just said that we were living according to the course of the world and the devil. I think, he's, I think he's pretty clear. The apostle's saying, you're, you're leaning, you're kind of off kilter towards Satan. Not God. That's the natural man. Your affections are toward the course of the world and the devil. We do have the capacity to make choices, but our choices are shaped by our affections, which are ordered by our nature as fallen human beings alienated from God, as dead men, spiritually dead men. And then, if that's not bad enough, he seals the deal by saying, and you are by nature children of wrath like the rest. By nature, by human nature under the wrath of God. Not just because of actual sins committed. Not because you reached the age of accountability. By human nature, under the wrath of God. If you believe that life begins at conception, 
then you must concede that at conception there is human nature. And with that nature comes one under the wrath of God by human nature. Or by nature, children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. That's, and, and Paul's writing to Christians. He's saying this is who you were. You weren't any better than anybody else. This is the state of everyone. So this is dead in sin. The confession says all becoming dead in sin. Everything you do from your lifestyle to your desires and the passions of your human nature and your physical body and your mind and your thinking, all of it is severed from God. Every bit of it is alienated from God. It's purely mortal. It's earthly. It's centered around the temporal. It's all under God's judicial curse. Again, children of wrath. That's the condition of all mankind since the fall of Adam. That's what the text says. Okay, Let's go back to the confession and see if this is what the confession teaches. All becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled. Corrupted in totality. Nothing left uncorrupted. Another phrase for that would be totally depraved. And then it explains even further. You're wholly defiled in all faculties and parts of soul and body. Now the faculties are the strengths, the powers, the abilities or uses. That's a faculty. The parts are the distinguishable components of a whole. Soul and body are the components of a human nature. It is the essence of human to be body and soul. A soul without a body is not a human. A body without a soul is not a human. It's a body. A human being is soul and body. So what the confession is saying is that all of the powers and abilities of all of the various parts of the soul and the body are corrupted, none excepting. Or totally depraved. Now let's break that down even further. Remember I let you out early last week. What are the parts of a soul? The soul is the immaterial part of a, of a human. Historically the soul has been broken down into two main parts. The intellect or mind and the will. With your intellect you understand... You have knowledge, uh, the intellect takes in a notion and then will assent to that notion making it a known fact, making it a truth. And with your will, you desire. That, that's your volition, your will. Your will is shaped by your affections. Affections are the dispositions you have toward something. Think about to be affected, to be pushed. You're, you're being urged in a particular direction toward a thing. That's your affections. When we say we have affections for Christ, what we're saying is I am I'm leaning, I'm going that way after Him. Something is drawing me to Him. So the parts of the soul are the intellect, the mind, and the will, the desire of the soul. Those are the parts. So what are the faculties? What can a soul do? Well, with the mind, it's able to receive information, to reason, to rationalize, to make distinctions, to weigh various options. 
With the will, you have the ability to desire, to want, to crave something. The will also has the ability to make a choice between two things. But choice is not will. Choice is acting upon the inclination of the will toward a particular option. Choices are shaped by the will, which is shaped by the affections. The ability to choose between two things. Hear this. This is going to be good. The ability to choose between two things is not the freedom of the will. It's the freedom of the choice. They're two different things. Now, how do we, can we prove biblically that choice or act and will are two different things? I think we can. Paul says in Philippians 2, 13... That it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Both to will and to do. To want and to act on your wants. To will and to choice, we might say. That's bad language, but God works both of those. The will and to do. Will is a faculty of the soul. Choice is a faculty of the will. The inclination of the will, which we would call the affections or the passions, the inclination of the will toward a particular option is determined by the mind's ability to rationalize, make distinctions, and weigh options. So the question is not, and we can see this in our children, the question is not can my child pick for, between two options for supper, M&Ms or hamburgers. Of course they can that's not the question. The question is, is their mind able to properly reason and determine what's going to be the best for them? The question is not, can I choose between two options? The question is, with what capacity is my mind able to properly weigh options and reason and make distinctions in order to inform my will so that I then make the right choice? If the mind is not able to do this properly then the will is not guaranteed to desire what's best. I mean, you, you might luck up. You might get lucky. But it's not guaranteed. And, and the choice of the soul, then, is not guaranteed to be the right choice. But again, you might get lucky if the mind is not able to do this properly. If the mind is actually broken and bent in a certain way, then the will doesn't have the ability to settle on what is best, and the choice of the soul will never be what is right. So what the confession is saying is that all of the faculties of the soul, intellect, will, choice, intellect first, will, second, choice, third, all of it, they're all defiled and corrupted by sin. Again, the question is not what does the confession teach, but what does the Bible say? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 17, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That would be the unbelieving world. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now that's, that's good, but the next verse is better. They are darkened in their understanding. That word understanding is the same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 3. For the mind, they're darkened in their understanding. And notice what it says, alienated from the life. What do we call that when you're alienated from life? That's death. 
alienated from the life of God. They're dead because of the ignorance that's in the mind that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They are utterly responsible. Their fault, their hardness of heart, their ignorance, they are thus alienated from God. In other words, they cannot make the right choice because they will not make the right choice. The affections are bent a certain way. Colossians 1.21, And you who were once alienated, that is, cut off from God, and hostile in mind, same word as Ephesians 2.1, hostile in mind, or 2.3 rather. You were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That doing evil deeds, that's the choice. You're hostile in your mind, and so you choose to do evil things. The confession gives this reference, Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now the word for mind there is a different word. It's just that which is responsible for the thought. That is defiled and their conscience is defiled. The conscience is what tells you what's right and wrong in your soul. They're defiled. So the conscience says, this is right. And God says, no, that's not right. And the conscience says, well, this is what's right. And God says, no, that's not what's right. The conscience is defiled because the mind is defiled. Romans chapter 8. Verses 6 to 8. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now the phrase there, mind that is set, is a different word. It doesn't simply mean the thinking, but we would put it all together. We would say this is the mindset of the person. The mindset, their, their bent of thinking, the characteristic mental attitude of this person. The mindset, according to flesh that is, human nature, severed from God, is hostile to God. For, why is it hostile to God? It doesn't submit to God's law. It's responsible. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. It cannot. Not having the power. Those who are in the flesh, not having the power to please God. They can't. Why? Because they won't. Why won't they? Because their mind is darkened and severed from God. The characteristic mental attitude of the flesh that is sinful humanity apart from God is not neutral. It's not leaning. It's not running away from God. It is running at God, hostile to God, ready to kill Him as soon as it gets its hands on Him. Hostile to God. At enmity with God. The mind is hostile to God, which is informed by the will, which is informed by the affections, which then informs the choice. All of it cannot come to God. Why? Because it will not. It's dead, severed from God. Or as Paul would say, alienated from the life of God. 
also. We are wholly defiled in all faculties and parts of body. This will be a lot easier. Parts of the body, your physical body parts, your skin, your bones, your muscle, your organs, muscles, organs, toenails, your brain. Those are the parts of your body. The faculties of your body are the ability for your physical body and its parts to carry out its specific tasks. All of the abilities of each and every part of your physical body is defiled. It's corrupted by sin, tainted with the effects of sin. What are the effects of sin? We call that death. The body is, in this sense, dead in sin. Or as Paul would say in Romans 8.10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, he's saying even though the physical flesh is dying, the spirit of God dwells in you and will, will continue on and will raise that up. And there he's speaking to Christians. Although the body is dead, your body is mortal. Your physical body is dying. All, every part of your body is dying. Your body is under judicial death. Your physical body is under God's curse and must suffer the penalty for sin. Your, spirit, your physical body is under spiritual or religious death. Your physical body is not able to render to God the worship that He deserves. You cannot look at God and live. God lives in light that is unapproachable in your physical body. It's dead in every sense of the term. Your physical flesh and all of its parts is defiled. How do we know this? Because Christ took a physical body like ours and suffered in it and died in it because the curse of sin had affected my flesh. My flesh deserves to die. And so He took it on Him and died in it. In the resurrection, our physical bodies are going to be raised and glorified so that we can live eternally with God. And Paul calls that a spiritual body. Even though it's physical in its constitution, he calls it a spiritual body. The wicked also will be constituted eternal physical bodies as well so that they can receive in themselves, in their physical bodies, eternal sufferings for sins. The physical body in all of its faculties is physically mortal and dying, spiritually severed from God, and judicially under the curse of God. It's dead in the trespasses and sins. This is what we call total depravity. I'll read it again. Wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. This is our natural state cut off from God in all faculties of body and soul. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice what, what we just discovered about ourselves. And Paul says, even when you were in that condition, 
Not when you came out of it. Even when you were in it, you were dead. God made you alive. This is what we call amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, teach us. Holy Spirit, teach us. We say it all the time. We don't have any conception of how wicked we are. We don't know how holy you are, and so we don't know how sinful we are. We, don't, we, we cannot fathom the expanse between a holy God and sinful creatures. Lord, we don't know how far Christ has condescended. Lord, you give us little glimpses here and there. We long for the day when we will be able to see it more clearly. But we do know, Father, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And you came to us. And you made us alive in Christ Jesus. For those who are born again, Lord, we are already seated in heavenly places in Him. Lord, teach us about your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.